Does that help this side by having it over that way a little bit? See it? Good morning, everyone. I was looking at my notes right before we started singing this morning. Brother Aaron turned around to me and said, uh, Brother Dave, it's too late. You can't make any changes at this point. And he caused me to remember, and I remember well, the first time I ever stood behind this stage here, so to speak, I was asked to deliver the talk just like Brother White just delivered the first uh, ten-minute talk of my lifetime to this Bible school. And for those of you that have gone through that, you know what I'm going to say. You know, I spent weeks, maybe months, trying to figure out how in the world I was going to come up with enough to talk for ten minutes. I lasted for six minutes. Now at 68, I spend the time trying to figure out how I'm going to get it down to 45 minutes. So, let's get going. I'm going to put that slide up there every morning right before our class. I would like for you just to look at the, the slide because truly... Everything that we are attempting to do in this class this morning, this week, is centered around that purpose. And I truly feel strongly if we don't absorb that thought this week, then I haven't really communicated to you what I want to, to try to communicate to you. So dwell on that thought each morning before we start our class, if you will. Okay, all together, success is not an accident, it is the inevitable consequence of right thinking and right actions. Okay, that's the last time you get to see that, we're going to do that by memory in the morning. Truly, that uh, definition, again, I want to emphasize that we know that if our thinking is not based on the Word of God, then our actions will never be appropriate to glorifying His name. Our actions must come from the Word of God, and therefore, knowledge of the Word of God must come first. We would like to finish a couple of thoughts from our first period class yesterday, first thing this morning. Paul in Romans 6, 16 tells us, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. One brother gives us this thought. There is such a thing as obeying the truth and not merely endorsing the truth. There is such a thing as obeying the truth and not merely endorsing the truth. It is, it is, excuse me, it is possible to be academic Christadelphians without being practicing ones. 
It is possible to be academic Christadelphians without being practicing ones. End of quote. Fellow students, our individual name, as we were looking at at the end of class yesterday, tells not only who we are, but what we are. When we told the first thoughts that came to mind when we called out the various names, the thoughts, for the most part, reflected characteristics of the individuals, their lifestyle, their actions, or and or their deeds. You didn't think of their name as such. You thought more of who or what they were. If the individual name David Boston chooses to be wicked or wrong in understanding and or walk, according to Solomon in Proverbs 10, David Boston will rot or return to dust, whether it be at a first or second death. Fellow students, do we feel that it is by chance or that it's by coincidence that the name Balaam has a meaning of waster of people? How about Nicolaitans, meaning vanquishers or destroyers of people? Is this by chance? How about Vashti, Israel after the flesh? Or Esther, Israel after the Spirit. How about Ruth, meaning to care for or compassionate? How about Babel, meaning confusion? How about Christ Jesus, having the meaning of the anointed Savior? Chance? We know that these connections are not by chance, but are by our Creator's design and intent. When we hear phrases or meanings such as these, <clears throat> who would come to your mind? Mighty one, supreme might, he who shall be, he who shall be host or captain of armies, he who will be tabernacled with his people. Remember to our brothers exhortation on Sunday evening concerning the name of Yahweh. When we hear these, we immediately think of the name of God. These describe ways His name is manifested to mankind. And these names of deity tell us something of His character or His being. Fellow students, our walk must be directed for the purpose of of the glorification of our Creator. And looking at our thoughts of the name of the wicked, we would be remiss if we fail to recognize that many teachings in Scripture, there are many teachings in Scripture concerning our Creator's plan and purpose of His name being glorified throughout the earth. If you will, look with me to Jeremiah chapter 23. And these are all familiar passages to most of you. Jeremiah 23, we'll start at verse 5. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise 
unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is, the, this is his name whereby he shall be called, the Lord our righteousness, Yahweh Sitkanu. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country, and from all countries whither I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. Look at the Apocalypse, chapter 2. Starting in verse 2, I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. And then finally to this point, chapter 22, verse 4. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. Brothers and sisters, we know that God's reputation or glorification of His name is emphasized throughout Scripture. And these passages should remind each of us that our walk in the truth must glorify God's almightiness, Our walk in the truth must glorify God's supremacy. Our walk in the truth must glorify God's oneness. Our walk in the truth must glorify His complete authority. Our walk in the truth must glorify His omnipotence. Our walk in the truth must glorify His omnipresence. Our walk in the truth must glorify His omniscience. While we're there in Revelation, look at 13, verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Verses that say those there will be those who are not written in the book of life. Look at chapter 17, verse 8. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. 
we would like to close this thought by saying that our hope, our prayer, is that each of us, as we stand before our judge, will have a character or reputation of a righteous name versus the name of the wicked that we looked at in Proverbs yesterday. Our faithfulness through our understanding and through our walk glorifies the name of deity. And in so doing, our name or our reputation is entered into the book of life. Okay, our second thought that we're going to look at is walk because apathy, spiritual ignorance, and complacency are unacceptable with Yahweh. like for you to look at this definition. <clears throat> Please with oneself or one's advantages or accomplishments. A feeling of quiet pleasure or security, often while unaware of or unconcerned with unpleasant realities or harmful possibilities. Self-satisfaction, contentment, or smugness. Just for a few minutes this morning, we're going to look at the word that this definition defines. The word that we're looking for can be used as a noun, as an adjective, and in some cases as an adverb. We'll give you an opportunity to think of what the word might be as we look at a few scriptural passages which might give us a clue of the word that has all of these definitions. First, let us look, or let's read about Nebuchadnezzar. Let's go to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel 4, and we'll start at verse 28. All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the twelve months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? <clears throat> Doesn't Nebuchadnezzar exhibit in this passage um, at least our last definition? Self-satisfaction, self-accomplishments, satisfaction over his deeds and his merits. Maybe several of the definitions fit Nebuchadnezzar in this, in, in this instance. Look over to Luke chapter 18.
Luke 18, we'll look at uh, verses 11 and 12 where we find the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Isn't there signs of most of these definitions in the Pharisee's statement? The I am this, I am not that. I believe we could say that the Pharisee exhibited pleasure in their own merits. Self-satisfaction, once again. Next, let's look in Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, we'll start at verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit, upon, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Here again, we see a self-esteem, a self-satisfaction of what I will, what I can do. Look at Isaiah 47. Verse 10. We see where Babylon felt self-satisfaction, self-exaltation. Isaiah 47, 47, verse 10. For thou hast trusted in thy wickedness. Thou hast said, none seeth me. Thy wisdom and thy knowledge, it has, hath perverted thee. And thou hast said in thine heart, I am, and none else beside me. Pleased with themselves. Pleased with their accomplishments. I am, and none else beside me. You know, I don't think that we necessarily would say that these definitions are bad or undesirable as such, at least most of them, pleased with oneself or one's advantages or accomplishments. I think we would say it was okay if we accomplished something to be be happy about that. A feeling of quiet pleasure or security, that in itself... I don't think we'd have a necessarily a problem with, unconcerned with. Maybe we'd have concern with that. Maybe we would hesitate on the self-satisfaction and the pleased with one's self-definition because this leads us to think of one being boastful, which is an undesirable trait in one who tries to live according to scriptural instruction. However, the word that we are looking at, which these definitions describe, is not considered as being desirable. Let's see a show of hands. How many of you have thought that the word that we're describing is pride? Pride? Okay. Quite a few hands. All right, what other word 
do some of you think this describes? Brother Lyman said complacency. Someone over here said self-centered. High-minded. Arrogancy. Apathy. Vanity. These are great. You know they can't describe all those. <laughs> Very good. Well, according to Webster's def- dictionary and the, wor- the word which these definitions all describe is the word that Brother Lyman gave us. Complacent or complacency. Complacent or complacency. And I think if we look back at some of these references that we have already reviewed and read just a little further in the account, we'll find that the pleasure, the joy, or the self-satisfaction was only of a temporary nature. Look back to Daniel uh, chapter 4 with me. Daniel chapter 4, and we'll read starting at verse 31 where we stopped. While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee, and they shall drive thee from men, and, they, and thy dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdoms of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Remember what we had read in verse 30. Nebuchadnezzar's complacency didn't pay off. Back to Luke chapter 18 again. where we found the comparison of the Pharisee and the publican. Luke 18. And we'll start at verse 13 now. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased. And he that <clears throat> humbleth himself shall be exalted. So we come to see that being complacent in our walk in the truth doesn't seem to have many, if any, rewards. Being self-satisfied with our accomplishments doesn't seem to lead to much for us on an individual basis. For those of you who thought our word was pride, your thoughts have merit. For complacency tends to set in after pride has taken hold as a part of our character. And the scriptural instruction concerning pride seems clear if we are truly the children of obedience in scriptural teachings. 
Let's look at what Israel was told. Look back at Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus 26, verse 14. But if you will not hearken unto me and will not do all these commandments, and then dropping down to verse 18, and if you will not yet for all this hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power. And I will make your heaven as iron and your earth as brass. How about when Hezekiah repented of his pride and his haughtiness? Let's look in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. Second Chronicles 32 and verse 26. Notwithstanding, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Why? So that the wrath of the Lord came not upon them in the days of Hezekiah. For lack of time, we'll not read from the book of James. Uh, I would strongly suggest, if you have a chance today, look at the thoughts in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. We are going to read a passage from there in a little bit. but However, we know that James expounds about how our faith without our works is dead. There are those who become complacent merely after studying and learning of the things contained in God's inspired Word. Then there are those who study those who learn of God's requirements and commandments in regards to salvation, but never take the necessary steps of going down into the waters of baptism. They seem to go so far and stop, as if to say they are satisfied with their present way of life, not wanting to move toward or exert any additional efforts toward glorifying God and seeking eternal life. There are those who make it through the waters of baptism, and then complacency sets in. Here I would like for you to look at James with me, chapter 2, just for a few verses. James chapter 2, starting at verse 17. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? 
And then there are those of us who become complacent in not trying to teach and promote the truth that God has revealed unto us as brothers and sisters. We become complacent in our study and development of a deeper understanding of the gospel. And in turn, we are not qualified or prepared enough to teach our children, our relatives, our friends, and many others of God's saving truth message. It sometimes seems that in our individual ecclesias, we fall into the trap of letting certain individuals have to carry all of the responsibilities of teaching and promoting the gospel message. And it seems that whether we call this complacency or laziness or whatever you want to call it, it occurs or it happens because we as individuals are not walking as Scripture teaches us to do. The point being we must not let ourselves become complacent due to the fact that we know the truth, have been baptized and are following God's commands. In fact, we would have to say that if we become complacent at this point in connection with promoting God's Word, there might really be a question of whether or not we have a proper understanding of that Word. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 and verse 16. Very familiar words. You all know them. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Sorry, verse 17. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, <clears throat> laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may hold, that they may lay hold on eternal life. And look to the council of Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. You know, there's been much talk over the years about the generation gap and how parents uh, cannot or are failing to communicate with their children. And the teacher of this class period is in no stretch of the imagination standing here this morning 
trying to indicate that he has the answers to such problems. However, we think that it is worth mentioning that those of younger age in our midst this week, in our midst this morning, in our midst on Sunday, at Sunday school, at meeting, are there because there has been communication between parent and child. The teaching or the promoting of the truth has evidently been started where it should have been started, in our homes. The younger Bible students have been raised to know of what is morally right and wrong according to God's Word, so that there is no frustration that comes on them when they are faced with situations that requires a decision. They have a foundation for making an intelligent decision. Even if they cannot definitely decide which path to take, they know there is a loving and an understanding parent or grandparent that is always available to assist if such assistance is necessary and is sought out. And along with this aid, they also have a foundation based on the best instruction book in the world. The security and the understanding that exist as children will grow as we grow older if we do not become complacent along the way. And really, if we think about this word, it cannot have a part in our lives if we hope to glorify God and enter into His everlasting kingdom. We cannot find anywhere in Scripture where there is a stopping point in our walk or a point where we can become self-satisfied or pleased with ourselves or our own merits. And we might close this part of our class this morning with thoughts that Jesus taught His followers. And these again... I keep saying that. You're going to get tired of hearing it. They are all familiar passages. Look at Mark 16 and verse 15. Repetition is the mother of all learning. Mark 16:15, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Truly, if we are students of our Savior's teachings, trying to follow His instructions, there will be no time for complacency in our spiritual lives. The word apathy, as such, is not found in Scripture. And I think uh, one of you uh, you gave us uh, apathy as possible, the word for our definition. That's good. <clears throat> but the word is not found as such in Scripture. The word's meaning is as follows, and I'll give it to you. This is the description or the definition of apathy. Absence or suppression of passion, emotion, or excitement. 
a lack of interest in or concern for things that others find moving or exciting. So I ask you to bear with me for just a few moments this morning as we look at a few thoughts that you may initially wonder, how in the world Brother Dave tying these thoughts into the word apathy? Well, bear with me. Hopefully I will do that when we summarize. We'd like to give you another quote uh, from a brother back in 1885. The extraordinary friction which occasionally occurs in the machinery of the truth reminds us of the fact that extraneous matter will accumulate. And we find it necessary, as it were, to shut down for a little while and go to work to clean up and throw out all hindrances and then start anew. This has been the truth's experience ever since its revival through the instrumentality of Dr. Thomas. We have no reason... To expect any other. Look at Matthew 18.7 with me. Eighteen verse seven. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it's not it. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. The word offenses here means a stumbling block. Just glance back to verse 23 of chapter 16. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Our Savior foretold that offenses must come. And he placed the woe upon the head of those by whom they came. The the antagonizing Effects, however, always reach out to others who may truly not deserve to suffer them. What do I mean? When I have a challenge with another brother or sister in our meeting, or they have a challenge with me, many, many times the awareness of that situation affects our spouses affects other brothers and sisters in the meeting, and yes, and sadly, even our young people. And these individuals may truly not deserve to be affected by someone else's disagreements. We stop sometimes and we wonder when we look around us and find ourselves beset with challenges on every side, both from without the community and from within the community. We stop and we wonder and maybe ask, why is this so? What have we done that Yahweh allows us to be so troubled? We listen for an answer, brothers and sisters and friends, and it comes. 
Yes, it comes from that only source of real comfort. We know that it comes from God's blessed Word. God's holy book of truth. The answer is given to us in such scripture as Hebrews 12.6, where we are reminded that whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. But before we look at this aspect, let us look further in scripture concerning this word stumbling block or offense. Look at Luke chapter 17. Seventeen, verse one. Then said he unto the disciples, "It is impossible that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come." Look at Romans chapter fourteen. Romans 14, we'll start at verse 19. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroyed not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. And for the lack of time, there are other good references that we could look at. One in Romans 16, one in 2 Corinthians 6, and if any of you are interested in those, I'll be happy to give them to you after class. But all of these passages deal with the word which means a stumbling block. We'd like to re- like to turn briefly, uh, or a thought that we t- touched on briefly earlier, and that of whom the Lord, Lord loveth, he chasteneth. The rod of chastisement is in its place when it is in the hand of a wise parent. The rod of chastisement is in its place when it is in the hands of a wise parent. And again, I'm not going to have you look up Proverbs 22 and 6, but you know what it says. The hand of a wise parent, the rod of chastisement, is used to train a child in the way he or she should go. And one brother states this. We quote, No well-regulated household can exist without the presence of a rod of correction in one form or another. Your teacher this period would suggest that so it is or so it should be in the household of God. Look at Proverbs 13 and verse 24. He that spareth his rod does what? Hateth his son. How many of us in here would ever say that we hate any of our children? 
He that spareth his rod hateth his son. But he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, starting at verse 6. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement... Whereof all, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. When we really let these thoughts sink in, what can be more comforting than this? Dealing with this passage from Psalms, We offer the following quote once again. Let the mind ponder well over these words and tears of gratitude will drown the comparatively light affliction of the present. Let the lightning flash and the thunder roar. Let the dark and dismal clouds of trouble encircle. Yea, let them hide the very horizon. It matters not behind them all is the piercing eye of him who has told us that not a hair of our heads shall fall to the ground without his notice. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. We might summarize our thoughts this morning with these four points. You and I as brothers and sisters in the truth cannot afford complacency. Apathy in almost any form is dangerous. Think of our children. Think of our grandchildren I don't have great-grandchildren yet, but I guess I should put that in there also. Apathy about their dress. Apathy about their activities. Apathy about their friends. Apathy about their conversations. And I could go on and on and on. Cannot be accepted by you and me. As students of God's Word, we cannot have apathy about those who offend the truth by incorrect doctrine and our walk. We must recognize that there will be stumbling blocks that we must deal with, which leaves no room for any form of of apathy 
or complacency. Thank you for your attention.